not sure any of us can hear anymore. <laughs> exactly. So. Um, let me just do a, a few, uh, not necessarily record-keeping things, but let me, let me point out to you that uh, last week, uh, last week, if you were with us at Lee, you saw Aaron and Rachel Turner uh, leading, uh, but I don't think that we formally introduced, so if you guys should just, just stand, you can leave the, the child right there. Uh, this is Aaron and Rachel Turner. Aaron's uh, one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. They came to us uh, by way of the Bahamas most recently where they were missionaries, and uh, Canada and Wisconsin before that. Uh, we're part of our congregation all throughout college and have come back to help us plant in, in Godfrey Lee. So greet the Turners when, when you see them. Uh, excited to have them, them start with us. So. so by way of introduction, let's talk about uh, the TV shows my wife watches again. Um, there's this one, one TV show. Last time, remember, we were, we were talking about well, let me, just, let me just pause and say this. You know that we kind of do, are doing a sort of two to three week series right now. The next two weeks, we're going to talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, this, this week uh, on, on sort of an individual level, next week on a, on a greater level, that's, that's sort of where we're going. So anyways, back to the, the TV shows. Last time, we were talking about um, the various home and garden and house repair shows. Um, which I mostly don't like. Uh, this, this week I want to talk about wedding dress shows, which I definitely don't like. Um, here's what happens on wedding dress shows, is that a lot of people come together, and um, if you've never watched these shows, I mean, just count yourself lucky and, and blessed of the Lord. But if you have watched the shows, you know that this is what happens, is that large groups of usually women descend upon... Uh, uh, in the most popular one, descend on a, a boutique in New York City to pick out their, their wedding dress. When they go to pick out their, their, their wedding dress, they bring a large group with them, and they make a very, very, very big deal about which wedding dress they are going to pick. I'm fine with this so far. Everything is, is going well, but what typically happens, or the part that always gets me on this show, is when they talk about their budget, right? And they say, so what's your budget for this, this dress? And um, it's interesting. I just want to give as a, as a parenthesis that, um, that uh, I, am not, uh, I, I am not typically what, what people would call cheap. I'm not going to use the pejorative that we use in, in West Michigan culture, right, uh, or that thing. I'm not usually, I don't think... I don't think usually cheap, but, but I'll just say this. I'm, I'm watching those shows, and they get to talking about budget, and there is a part of me that becomes instantly, well, I don't even think it's cheap. It's just that they say, they start with the budgets, what's your budget for, for this dress? And the answer usually starts at 5000 right? And me, I start to think of all the things that they could be doing with that $5,000. I'm like... $5,000 on a dress, imagine all the things you could do with $5,000. And you, typically, I, I try and keep, uh, keep my, my opposition you know, really positive. Like, like, um, like I'm very moralistic in my watching of dress shows. So I'm like, $5,000 on a dress? Do they know how many people they could feed for $5,000? Right? And then invariably what happens on dress show is that they show them a lot of dresses but the dress that they love is never in their budget. So they're always needing to bump their budget up. Like $5,000 apparently is never enough to get a dress that is beautiful enough for the wedding they're about, about to have. And then, and then the sinful side of me uh, starts to hope that the engagement gets broken off or something goes astray because I'm just like, what is with these people in their, in their dresses? And so... But there, I'm assuming that their thought process is that this is their wedding day, and because it's their wedding day, it needs to be special, and it needs to be perfect, and it needs to be beautiful, and it needs to be extravagant. 
And I sometimes have a hard time relating to that. And I started at the low number because I watched an, another show where uh, they were much higher on what they were going to spend uh, on the dresses. There's even another show that's not even about dresses. It's about, about weddings. And their budgets for the, the, these weddings is just so insane that it's, it's almost impossible to relate to. Uh, people are spending more on these weddings than, than most of us make in two years. And I'm like, what in the world? What are they doing? When you get up into the point where you're like, well, the budget for the wedding is only 300000 uh, That seems I, like everybody knows, especially when I'm up front, I'm not good at math. But I'll tell you this, that you can feed a lot of people for $300,000, right? I'll confess to you that I'm probably more... Uh, that my indignant and, and moral attitude is, is probably, uh, probably me tricking myself, right? I'm probably not, uh, I like to think that it's just, you know, it's the Lord in me and my care and concern for the poor that makes me so frustrated at $300,000 weddings. It seems to be extravagant, $300,000 uh, or, or $5,000 uh, dresses. I only have one daughter, but I'll make this promise to you publicly. She's not getting a $5,000 dress. Um, and if she thinks she is, she better go back to Wetzel's Pretzels and start saving some money. Right? So I, I brought all of that up to say this, is that there is, a, there is, a, there is an extravagance to what they're doing with those, those dresses that I have a hard time comprehending. And I want to use the word extravagance again, and we're going to come back to it, to it several times. But there is, there is a level of, 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 of extravagance that seems to me to be obscene and too much. It's just too much. How much is too much? Is a $300,000 wedding better than a $30,000 wedding, better than a $3,000 wedding? It seems to be too much. Why are they spending so much on those weddings? The extravagance offends me as a person. I remember a, a while ago, we used to sing a song in, in church um, uh, that had the line, your love is extravagant. And it was a reference to the love of God. And one of the people told me once, well, my dad really doesn't like that song. He just doesn't know if we should be using the word extravagant to refer to the love of God. My argument this morning is going to be about exactly that. Is there a possibility that God, in the way he, 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 he brings us into the kingdom, that his love and his grace and his goodness to us, is it like a $300,000 wedding? Is it too extravagant? Is, is God's, is extravagant the word, uh, uh, too much of a word? The reason he opposed the word extravagant is extravagant seems like over the top. Extravagant seems like too much. Extravagant seems like going too far. And because this is West Michigan, and a lot of us have a tendency towards, um, towards budgeting and conserving and using things, monies and services well, I think that what had happened is some of his background had seeped in, and he wanted God to be on the same budgetary concerns with his grace and love that we were. But the question is going to be, is God's grace... Is God's love, is the nature of the kingdom, is it or isn't it extravagant? We're going to talk about the par a parable of Jesus this morning. It's the parable of the prodigal son. We all know the word prodigal. We use it in English all the time. When we use the word prodigal in English, we use it just to mean one who has run away, one who has left, one who has walked away. And that is certainly true. But the word prodigal actually means one who spins with no concern. One, it means, uh, and I'm going to use a word uh, that in, in Tim Keller's book, uh, The Prodigal God, he defines this. And when he, when he defines it, he uses a word that I feel like needs, needs definition. But the dictionary definition of prodigal is an excessive spendthrift. Now, the word spendthrift did not make a lot of sense to me because that sounds like a person who is thrifty, right? It's the good qualities of thriftiness. Right? That's not what the word spendthrift means. It's a spendthrift is someone who just runs through their money, spends all of their money until they have no more left. 
They are one who spins extravagantly. So the question is going to be this morning, is God's love or is God's kingdom orientation, is his grace too extravagant? And considering God's extravagance, is who exactly in this, this story is prodigal? How many prodigals do we see in this story? And so we'll begin there. I'll read to you from uh, chapter 15 of the book of Luke, starting at verse 11, and it says this. And he said, Jesus is about to speak, and Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he, the father, divided the pro his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe th famine arose in that country, and he began to need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself... Or when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and, he, and, he, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called a son. But his father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of, his, of the servants and asked, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years have I served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who killed, you killed the fatted calf for him? I skipped a part. He said, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to his son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Story of two brothers and a father. Right? The younger brother comes to the father and says to him, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. It's terribly presumptuous to come up and say, give me my share of the inheritance. Typically, an inheritance goes to the children when, when the father is dead. But he goes to the father and says, Father, my care and concern for you and for your life, I don't need you to die. I just need to treat me as though you were dead. I need you to give me my inheritance. Divide the money amongst us. The father, in hearing this, in fact, does do it. He gives money to the son. He, he does, uh, divests the property, and he gives it to both sons. So the younger son, who we're going to deal with in the first part, gets his share, and the older son also gets his share, which would be larger. We'll come back to that. Now, not many days later, the son, having gathered his, all he had, takes a journey into a faraway land. He is essentially saying, Father, give me all of your money. Give me all of your cash. Give me all of the inheritance. I want to live as though you were dead. And then, having said he wants to live as though the father were dead, he gathers everything as he has, and he abandons the family. He abandons the family. He takes a journey into a far country. When he gets to the far country, the way in which he lives... The way in which he acts is reckless, it says in Scripture. He squanders his property in reckless living. He is a young man with too much money who has rejected his family and run off, and he spins it. That's where we get the word prodigal 
right? He's a spendthrift. He spends all that he has. And when he had spent everything, right, he did not save anything for a rainy day. He was not prepared. When he spends everything, a severe famine hits the, the land. A severe famine arises in the country that he's in. Now, if, if the famine doesn't hit, maybe he has the ability to earn money. Maybe he has the ability to, to, to sustain himself. But the reality is when the famine hits, he has no ability to sustain himself. So he goes and hires himself out as an indentured servant or essentially places himself uh, in, in, in a relationship with one of the citizens of that country, and he sent into the field to feed pigs. Now, this is significant because the young man, we would assume in that Jesus is teaching this story to, 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 to Jewish people and consistent with Jewish teaching. We know that, the, that to work with pigs, to be near pigs, is to be considered a great dishonor. It's a symbol and a sign that he has fallen into a deep, deep and dirty place. It is not a good situation that he, that he is in. It has become so disgusting, it has become so disconnected from the home of his youth that he went from the place where he was in his father's home, which was at least rich enough to have property, which we're going to learn later is at least rich enough to have servants, is at least rich enough to, to need servants to work the land. He has gone from a place of relative wealth to a place where he is totally and completely destitute. He has nothing. So he's feeding the pigs. Not only is he feeding the pigs, that's a, that's a sign and a symbol of where he's fallen socially, but where he's fallen as a person is emphasized because he becomes jealous. He begins to be jealous of the food that the pigs are eating. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He went from a home of relative wealth. You would assume a home of, uh, where the table was set for him. You would assume a table where the food was placed out for him. You would assume a place where the servants prepared food for him. You would assume a place where he did not have to go and prepare his own meal, but rather a place where he came to the table and food was placed in front of him to a place where he has no food to eat and is in fact jealous of the food that the pigs eat. The despised animal of Israel becomes his 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 jealous goal. I wish I could eat like the pigs do. Then verse 17 says this, but when he came to himself, in the Christian Standard Bible, it translates it like this. When he came to his senses, all of a sudden he realizes what I've just pointed out. He says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He realizes this, is that in a far off land, having rejected his family, having said to his family and running, you are not worthy of my love. You are not worthy of my care. You are not worthy of my concern. I am no longer one of you. That's what he said by running off and being the runaway. He has rejected all of his family. He realizes, though, in rejecting them, he's put himself into a situation, into a land where no one will care for him. No, there is no concern for him. And he realizes then that even the slaves or the servants in his father's house are fed. Even they get food. He's longing for the, for the food of the pigs. And he realizes the pigs here have food. At least in my father's house, the servants have food. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. Or in other words, he arose and he, he makes the journey home. While he's coming home, he's still a long way off. The father sees the son coming and feels compassion and runs and embraces him and kisses him. This is different than what the son expected. The son is a runaway. The son is a rejecter. The son has said to the family, you're worthless. I don't love you. I want to be on my own. The son has said, money matters to me more than you do, dad. Partying matters to me more than you, dad. My own enjoyment, my own self, they all matter to me more than you, dad, in this home. I'm leaving and he has run away. And so the son's assumption is that when he comes home, that the father will remember how the son has treated him. And the father will act in accordance with the way the son has acted. And so as a runaway, 
Probably what kept him from coming home sooner was this reality, this idea in his head. How can I come again to those whom I've rejected? How can I come again to those whom I've hurt? How can I come again to those whom I've sinned against? Will not my actions, the prodigal thinks, have affected the, the, the heart of my father? My father couldn't possibly love me anymore. I'm a runaway and a rejecter and a hater of who my father is. That's on the heart of the son, but the heart of the father is different than the heart of the son. The father, seeing the son coming, walking down the long road, does not say to himself, Behold, here comes the son who rejected me. He doesn't say, Hey, servants, look, here comes the son who took all of my money. He doesn't say to the servants, Oh, here comes the son who said it was better off that I was dead so he could have an inheritance. The father doesn't say any of those things. The father doesn't look and it doesn't, there's no shade thrown. There's no, there's no internal struggle in the father. There's no thought in the father. Do I trust him in coming home? Can I accept him in coming home? The father doesn't say, what if he does it again? We're not told any of that. The response of the father is to see the son and to be filled with compassion. His son is coming home. When he comes to his father, while he's still a long way off, the father saw him and he felt compassion. And instead of waiting, right? Uh, if you're a parent, you know that, that, that a lot of what we do as parenting is trying to teach our children how to behave, trying to adjust consequences and reality so that they can function in society. But the father in this case does not decide that this is a moment for a lesson for his son. The father doesn't even say, I'm excited that he's coming home, but I'll sit here behind my desk and wait until he comes and approaches me. The father doesn't wait for the son to knock at the door and approach him contritely. The father doesn't wait for, for the son to establish, how does he know the son's coming home? Maybe the son's coming home to ask for more money and run again. The father doesn't know, but the father's response is not to wait for that answer. The father's response is to jump up and run to the son. He ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. This is a public act. This is outside of their property. This is outside of their, uh, 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 of their land. He publicly runs in and embraces him. If you're a parent who's ever struggled with a kid who, whose behavior is not what you wanted it to be, if you've ever been a parent who's occasionally received a call home from a teacher or a principal or somebody else saying, I've got bad news, Right? If you've ever been the parent who looks at you've got the number for the school programmed into your phone so that you know when that number comes in, you go, oh, that's the school. And you've ever said to yourself, please let it be good news. Please let it be good news. Please let it be good news. You know what it's like. And this is just being perfectly honest. You know what it's like to parent in a place where, where you're trying to parent and you're trying to love and the child's doing things that they should not do. Perhaps you've had in real life a prodigal child, a child who's run away. And you know that one of the realities, if we're being honest, if we expose our hearts to the world, is this reality, this worry. This worry, what will the world think? What will the world say? What will the teacher say? What will the principal say? What will the neighbor say? What will they think? What will they think? Right? And you also know that there's always in, in, in parenting, or, or maybe you don't know yet, but I will be honest with you, in parenting, there is always and consistently, as you parent and as children live public lives, there's this reality when your children do things, other people will start to think things about how you parent your child. And they'll say to themselves, well, maybe if he'd done this. Or maybe if she'd done that. Maybe if they would have acted like this. And so here's the thing, though. The, 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 the father does not give a moment to stop and think, well, what will the neighbors say if I just uncritically accept him back? Because you know neighbors are going to talk. You know villagers are going to talk. You know that the people are going to talk and they're going to say, look at that man. That guy stole from him. That guy took for him. And he's running out to meet him again. Maybe if he had not spoiled him, that child wouldn't be such a product. But the father does not care what they say. He's a running father. He jumps up. He runs out. He wraps his arm around him. And it says that he kisses him. 
he runs, embraces him, and kisses him. And the son says to him, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's a true statement, by the way. He's rejected the father. He's rejected the family. He squandered, he squandered his, his inheritance. It's a true statement. But the truth of the statement is overcoming a greater love. The father hears and says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. I said earlier this week on Facebook, and I repeat it, it is an interesting thing to me that the sign of God's grace, the amazing, extravagant symbol of God's grace, is a well-marbled steak and not broccoli. Can I get an amen? amen? The greatness of the grace of our God, right? But he says, bring it. Here's the thing. There's a point here. Broccoli doesn't cost that much. You can plant some broccoli seeds. You can grow a lot of broccoli. You can feed a lot of people. It's why in, in doing hunger relief, right? We plant rows and rows of things like wheat. We plant in the third world, they plant things like quinoa. It's a good source of protein. Doesn't cost much. It's why they plant things like rice. It's a good source of food that does not cost much. You know what costs, costs a lot in every society and our own, relatively speaking? Fat calves. Right? And this does not seem to be value city meat, right? If you shop for me, I like to eat meat. And so we shop, uh, we shop sales, we shop stuff. My mother, uh, who is unable to be with us because of her, of her health, but one of the things she does is she goes through the newspaper ads. She still gets a physical newspaper. She goes through those ads. And so I could call her, and I'm sure you could too if you like, call her at any point and say, where are the meat sales this week? And she would tell you, she'd say, well, DeYoung's, which by the way is, uh, which is big top, but she's old school. Uh, so she'd say, DeYoung's has this on sale for this, or Kin's Market has this on sale for this. Oh, and Meyer, did you know that Meyer is selling chicken for 69 cents? She'll know, right? She always knows. And one of the things we're always watching recently is the price of beef, because I don't know really what's happened in society. I'm not an economics major, but the price of beef has gone up, Right? Um, I'd like to think that it's priced in proportion to deliciousness, right? It makes sense that it costs more. It tastes better. But I don't like that because we have to spend more. I, I make all, all of this to say is that even in our own society, beef costs more than any other meat. And in their society, it certainly would have been true. But this does not say, bring us any old cow. We're going to have a pretty good meal. It doesn't say, like, sometimes we have parties, right? Like you're doing a birthday party for your child. If you're going to invite your child's friends and have a party, you're going to throw a party. Typically, you do not get for that party steak. You do, not, uh, you do not cook up like, hey, we're going to have, I think, uh, 16, 10-year-olds in the room. We're going to have cake. We're going to have clown noses. Everybody's going to have fun. We're going to go to the jumperoo place, jump on some trampolines. And uh, at the end of that, we're going to have filet mignon. It's going to be great, right? People don't feed filet mignon to children's parties because it costs more. We feed them hot dogs, right? Now, a hot dog in its own right is not terrible, Right? A hot dog on certain days is delicious. Right? A hot dog's okay, but it's not steak. Right? And so he says, bring this out. It's a, it's a higher form of meat. And the reason that's happening there is, is, is the point to be made is that there's an extravagance to the level of the meat that he gets. Right? I, I don't want to belabor this steak point, but just one more, one more, one more point. Right? One more point about this is that in our neighborhood, we have a restaurant called Brands. I don't think Tommy is watching the live feed, so we'll just be honest, okay? Brands is the McDonald's of steak, right? It's kind of the McDonald's of steak, but it's better than McDonald's because it's steak, right? And you can go at Brands, you can go at, you can go at lunchtime, and this should, this should tell you all you need to know. Uh, you can go at lunchtime, and you can get a six-ounce steak and a baked potato. It's called a steak and bake. You can get that for $5.99, right? And I'm not hating because I go and get my steak and bake. That's a hookup, right? I like my steak. I like my bake. That's delicious, right? But here's the thing. I don't know where they got the cows that that came from. I probably don't want to know where I got the cows that that came from. I see the way that those steaks are shaped. Those do not seem to be logical muscle shapes for, for a cow. But I eat that because that's tasty. 
But one time, for my birthday, my wife brought me to this place called Judson's. Now, Judson's is an entirely different steak place, right? They had a coupon, don't worry. We, we got a coupon. And the coupon was, buy one, get one free steak, right? I don't want to tell you how many times we could have eaten at Brands for the steak we bought there. And when I cut into the steak, it was like butter, you know? It's like one of those moments, like, you know how some people see the sunset and, and they feel compelled to write memes about the greatness of God? Like they post this, like, I saw the sunset and it reminded me of Psalms, in the Psalms where it says, oh Lord, our Lord, how great, worthy is the Lord, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth, right? You know, some people get that with sunsets. For me... When the knife cuts through the steak, just like, <laughs> cooked perfect, right? Like when I say medium rare, I mean medium rare, not overcooked, right? But when it's cooked perfect and the knife just like, it just, it just slides through it. There's like a thing, you're like, wow. And I bring that up to say that that's probably not the most expensive steak place on earth. Might not even be the most expensive steak place in Grand Rapids. But I will tell you that compared to, to, to the steak and bake that you can get for $5 at lunch, it was extravagant. They have, uh, they have cows there. They actually tell you where their cows came from. So these are, these are Japanese grass-fed cows that they're feeding you, right? I like to know that my cows were having a good time hanging out, <laughs> eating grass. There's levels to things, right? And there's levels to parties. But this party seems to be over the top. And that's the point. This is not, a, this is not McDonald's. It's not a 10-year-old's party with hot dogs. It's not a brand steak and bake, right? It, it, it's not all of those things. Like, this is more extravagant than Judson's. And that's, that's almost hard for my mind to comprehend, having once tasted the Justin, Judson's, that there's, there's something out there. It is amazing to think that the level to which the father goes through to treat the son is insane. Because here's the reality. The son had rejected him. The son had run off. The son had despised him. The son had said, I want nothing to do with your family. The son said, your fa this family's not worthy of me. The son said he was better. He is deserving of nothing. He's right when he comes back and says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And so if the father would respond in giving him a party, Something simple, something nice with maybe a chili dog situation where you could put on your own toppings. Would not the father have been justified? Would not the father have been loving? Would not the father have been good? If the father had said, that's great, I'm going to take you to Brands and we're going to get a steak and bake, would not the father have been good? Would not the father have been loving? Listen, if the father had given him broccoli, it might have seemed like a punishment, but would not the father have still been graceful? He deserved nothing and was longing for the food of pigs. But the father says, bring me the best cow and bring me the best steak. I don't want a sizzler. I want a ribeye. I want something that's well marbled. It's the fatted calf. It's the expensive one. The father is being extravagant. Verse 24, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See, the father, the father has a knowledge of the son's, the peril of the son's situation that seems to even go beyond the son's knowledge of his situation. The son knows that he has no money. The son knows that he's hungry. The son knows that slaves are treated better in his father's house. The son knows all of these things. But the father knows he's dead and now he's alive. So the father's response to the prodigal, and I want to point this out because at times all of us are prodigal, all of us run from God, all of us run away from him. We, we have a tendency, all of us, to walk away. I want to say to you for all the times that you have been prodigal that there is, this is a parable of God's grace. 
and the way that the kingdom functions and that the king who is in charge of the kingdom functions in a certain way and it is revealed in, in, in the parable. And so for those moments when you've walked away, I want you to hear what it says because I think that some of us in running away from God, some of us in rejecting God, whether it, it, whether it is a direct rejection, as in God, I'm done with you, I'm walking away completely, or it's a momentary rejection, which is God, I know your word says this, but I want to do my own thing. I know that a lot of us, we become prodigal in different minutes, we, at different times, we walk away from God, and in walking away from him, we think that we cannot come home to him because we think, oh, oh, what have I done? God can never accept me. God will never love me. God will never take me. God will never care for me. God only wants to punish me. God's going to be out to get me. I want to say to you, that is not the uniform testimony of scripture. That is not the uniform testimony of what Jesus said. And it is not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is this. If you have run away, please Come home. Come home. It's point number one. The prodigal needed to come home. The father saw him coming and he didn't run to give him a lecture. He ran to give him love. He didn't run to, to, to give, him, give him consequences. He ran to give him a hug. He didn't run to tell him about how he'd hurt the family. He ran to clothe him. He ran to outfit him. He ran to feed him. He ran to meet him so that he might come home. And if you've ever been prodigal, then the testimony of Scripture seems to be in Jesus' teaching that the way of the kingdom calls you. Come home. The Father's waiting. Not waiting to hurt you. Not waiting to hit you. Not waiting to go after you. Not waiting to get you. Not waiting to hate you. Not waiting to despise you. Not waiting to enslave you. He's waiting to hug you. Come home. Come home. The, the prodigal come home, came home. And the father met him there. And then in coming home, I want you to hear this. Come to the table. The father says, go, go, go. Go get, go get the fatted calf. Come sit at my table. Table, tables in, 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 in ancient times, table relationship, table fellowship is a big deal. When you sat at the table with someone, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a familial way to behave. It's a loving way to behave. It says something. The one who can sit at my table is one whom I love and care for. And he says, come to my table. If you've ever wandered from God, he tells you not to come home, not only to come home, but he's calling you further. Come to his table. He's going to put food on the table for you. He's going to feed you. He's going to nourish you. He's going to care for you. He's going to love you. Come to the table. And then lastly, not only does he want you to come home, not only does he want you to come to the table, but he wants you to come to the party. And you need to understand this because we think, okay, we get in our mind the concept of acceptance. Okay, Jesus might accept me home. He might allow me home. He might, he might grit his teeth and deal with me at home. No, this parable seems to say that Jesus is the kind of God and the kingdom is the kind of place that celebrates the fact that you come home. Jesus is not waiting to zap you because you don't measure up. He's not waiting to get you because you did it wrong. No, the way of the kingdom is one that invites you in. Come home, come to the table, and come to the party. All of heaven is not gritting its teeth and bearing the fact that you have come. It is celebrating the fact that you are home. It is killing the fatted calf. It is laying out the table and the, 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 the wine and the desserts and everything that, that goes with the party are flowing. The sun has come home. Come to the party. That's the nature of grace. And now the question becomes then, what is the nature of this grace? And is, in fact, this grace too much? Is this grace extravagant. Remember, I told you the story of the dresses and I told you the story of the weddings. And when I watch those, something internally in me gets like just annoyed and sick. Oh, it's too much. It's too extravagant. I wonder if one of our problems in coming to Jesus is we have not yet 
come to realize that the grace of the Lord God is much more extravagant than a $300,000 wedding. It's much more extravagant than, than a $5,000 wedding dress. And maybe part of the problem with grace is that we have not yet begun to comprehend just how amazing this grace is, how extravagant this grace is. And if the son is prodigal, he spins until it's all gone or spins without concern then is there a possibility in this passage that God is also prodigal? Tim Keller in his book, Prodigal God, suggests yes. His suggestion is, and we need to understand in the background, is this reality, that Jesus tells the parable. But Jesus is also the one who is going to spend everything to make the parable possible, right? Jesus is going to do what? He's going to give his blood. He's going to give his life. He's going to give his very existence to die to make it possible that prodigals can come home to God. Is it possible that in this story that not only the son is prodigal, but God is also a spendthrift? He spends everything on the son. Hold that in your head. I want you to ask yourself this. Is grace extravagant? How extravagant is grace? And do we comprehend it enough? Because we've got to talk about another brother, Right? So here's one of the things I've realized. Uh, my, first, my first job in ministry was working for an organization called Youth for Christ. My job at Youth for Christ was to work with, um, initially with, with, uh, with juvenile boys uh, from, uh, from the juvenile detention center, do chaplaincy. But predominantly what I did was to run urban ministry in Godwin Heights. Right? And so predominantly what I've done and had done for years was work with kids in what's called youth guidance, kids who were at risk, kids who did things that were. And so, so one of the things that you're constantly trying to do is you're trying to find a way to, uh, to love on them and a way to care for them and a way to make clear that, that their behavior is not going to work. And so sometimes... Sometimes what you do is you try what's called positive reinforcement. And positive reinforcement works like, like this. If you cannot do, not do this, this, and this, and you can do this, this, and this, then at the end of the week, I will do this. That's kind of how positive reinforcement works. So uh, if you can manage not to punch your sister for three out of five days this week, and you can... You can manage to turn in three out of the five assignments you were given this week. Then at the end of this week, I will give you a Snickers, right? And so that's, that's, a, that's a hugely, hugely simplified, uh, simplified version of the way positive reinforcement works. Here's one of the things I've noticed, though, having done positive reinforcement both in my own home and as a ministry thing, is that positive reinforcement while good for the person you're trying to positively reinforce often, if they have siblings or people are close to them, it can become grating on, on the siblings. And so um, we, had a, we had a positive reinforcement situation uh, in our home once, and then one of our other children uh, made a very declarative statement that they no longer believed in positive reinforcement. And so we said, why don't you believe in positive reinforcement? They say, it doesn't work. Positive reinforcement is stupid and it doesn't work. Well, what's at the heart of that? What's at the heart of the anti-positive reinforcement stand? What's at the heart of the anti-positive reinforcement stand is this, is that their concept of what was happening was they were not the one who was trying to be positively reinforced. They had not, in their opinion, done anything to need to be positively reinforced. They were not hitting their sister three times a week, as per our example. They were already turning in three of their five assignments as per our, our example, and at the end of their week, for not doing all of those things, that, or for continuing to do all the things that they were already doing, their reward at the end of the week seemed to them to be nothing. And so, one of the things I've been considering and trying to think about and wrap my mind around, like, I've noticed this as a, as a school board member, as someone who is familiar with how we do discipline in, in schools and different stuff, I said, how do, we, how do we deal with that? How do we walk through that? I will be honest with you, and it's not in our, our purview, I have no idea exactly what the answer is to that conundrum. But I know that I've seen it. I know that I've, that I've seen it, and I know that people have said, well, why is that person getting that? I bring that up so that we can talk about this. In verse 25, this happens. There's an older son. 
in the field. And he's out working. He's probably out there supervising the servants. Maybe he's doing manual labor himself, but this is a, this is a relatively wealthy home. There's, there's servants, and he's been out there. They're, they're doing his work, and he comes home, and he says, he hears music, and he hears dancing, and he calls one of the servants over and asks him, what, what does this mean? And the servant says to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the son, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated or begged him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years have I served you. Uh, the Christian Standard Version, which I just happened to, to be studying this week, it's an excellent version. But I think it accurately translates, this, this, son, this son says, These many years as I, have I slaved for you. This, these many years have I slaved for you. Every time I read this, I just start to wonder slightly just how old these sons were. Like, like if you parented, when he says, oh, all these years have I slaved for you. Um, it sounds exactly like a 15-year-old after being asked to clean their bedroom. Um, <laughs> but his, his response is, all these years have I served, I've slaved for you. It's just not served. It's, oh, I was your slave Uh, look, these many years have I slaved, served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Uh, that is so cultural, right? That It's like hard to put like, like, but there's something funny to me about the guy going, listen, he gets a whole cow. He's a runaway. He rejected the family. He said we were all losers. He runs off. He does whatever he wants. I stay here, get treated like a slave. He gets a cow, and you didn't even give me a goat. It's the goat conundrum, right? Positive reinforcement, that doesn't work. It's like, why didn't I get a goat? I could have had quite the party with my friends. Verse 20, verse 30. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, he expands on it. He adds details that are not added earlier. He says, he ran off and he squandered your, all your stuff. He spent all your money with prostitutes. It's like, look at him. Do you even get how bad he is? He devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. And then the father says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's the question. How many prodigals are there in the story? Right? Both in the traditional sense, who spins recklessly? And then in, in, in the, or, or the, the literal sense of the, of the word, and in the traditional sense where we just mean prodigals, one who is far off right? There's a lot of moving pieces. But here's what the point I'd like to make. Both of these... My ear is iffy today, I guess. Both of the children essentially say to their father, I am not your son. The younger one says it when he says, give me the inheritance that I might go. The older one says it when he says, I didn't go anywhere and you treated me like a slave. Both of them say, I am not your son. One ran away and the other stayed home, right? I think there is a lesson for us in this as well. Because I will make this observation that many of us, having been for a while the prodigal son that runs away, having come home soon after, forget about the grace extended to us. And then we get very angry when we see the same grace extended to others. If I had one thing that I would say defines our culture and, and culture at large and the culture in the church in general, I would say it is this. We are very, very concerned that somebody else is going to get given something that we feel that we have earned. And we live in a very much a society that is able to think of ourselves as having earned it. Why are we giving that away? Why did they get that? Why do they have that? Why are they taking this? Everything from our tax money to how we behave in, in church, we do live in a society that tends to feel very much that we have earned and other people are given, and how dare they? All of us, probably, when we read this, at some point, want to relate more to the older brother, 
Because we don't want to think of ourselves as the one who ran away. We don't want to think of ourselves in that way. And at times we are. But I would suggest to you that in this story, the older brother is not intended to in any way be a hero. And probably most of us are very much at times like this older brother. Because we too look at the God of the universe and say, God, how is it possible that I have acted holy in this way? That I have acted righteous? That I have done this? And you've blessed them. Them. How can it be? All of us have looked at another person and we wonder, how is it possible that God can give to them? I remember a while ago, a Christian artist named Steve Taylor wrote a song called Jesus is for Losers. And he said the reason he wrote the song Jesus is for Losers is this. He was watching a news story, and it was all about a, a director of pornography that had, been, that had met Christ and gotten saved. And he was giving his testimony on some news TV show. And Steve Taylor said as he was watching it, his first thought was, oh great, that's just what we need. Losers like that representing Jesus. And then immediately God convicted him. That that man was no more of a loser than he was. Oh, man, we're all, in some sense, prodigal, whether we've run or whether we've stayed. The Reformers had a saying, uh, a famous saying. They said, you are saved, or we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And their point was that the way the gospel should function or the good news functions in the life of a believer is, yes, it does save us, but it also sustains us. The same gospel that rescued us sustains us. And the same gospel that rescues and sustains us will one day bring us to victory. And part of the problem, especially if we grew up in certain churches and certain camps, that we've, we have inadvertently been taught that the gospel is something that we move on from. The gospel is just a, fan, a, 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 a long way of saying the good news or the idea that it is God and God alone who rescued sinners. It is God and God alone who sent his son to pay the debt for sinners. It is God and God alone who makes sinners into sons and daughters adopted. That's, that's the gospel in shorthand that God is at the center of. And a lot of us, we grew up in congregations or we grew up in places that say, you get saved. Okay, now that you got saved, you need to move on from the gospel and start to act right. You need to move on and start to do right. You need to move on and do this, 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 and this. And we've added various levels and, and layers of moralistic behavior and things to do. And we think that we have moved on from the gospel as though our heart would ever be pleasing to God if it were not completely and totally taken over by the gospel and the realization that the same good news or the same grace that accepted the son, one son home was the same grace that allowed the other son to never leave. There was a second son here, and the second son was disgusted at the extravagant level of grace that God gave, or that, that the father gave to the son. I wonder how often we, in our heart of hearts, believe that, that grace is just a little too excessive. It's just a little bit too much. I wonder how often we start to think just a little bit much of ourselves. We start to think that we're a little better than we are. We start to get confused. It is amazing to me. I read once that if you take a pig and you drop a pig off in the, in the woods, let's take two pigs because they need to uh, two pigs, and you drop them out, and these pigs start to breed with other pigs, that within two generations, a pig goes feral again. In other words, a pig will go from the kind of pig you eat on your dinner table to a wild boar within like two generations. It happens fast. And I was thinking about that because I think a lot of us are like pigs in that sense. We go very feral as to the nature of grace within, with very quickly. Having been bought by God's grace, having been brought to the table by God's grace, having been given a party by God's grace within 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 a very short time, we start to forget about the grace that brought and bought us. And we start to begrudge it to others. The grace of the kingdom is extravagant. The grace of the kingdom is over the top. The grace of the kingdom is huge. The grace of the kingdom, the symbol of it, is a fatted calf and it does not even come close to telling the story of what grace actually was. Because the grace was not the flesh of a cow. The grace was the flesh of a God. The God whose name was Jesus Christ, who he, being in the very image of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But 
his nature, who being in very nature God, chose to suffer on a cross, chose to die a servant's death, a slave's death, chose to humble himself even further. The one who did all of that His grace is extravagant. And as if his grace has extravagantly brought you to his table, if you were running and he extravagantly brought you home, that is a beautiful thing. You should revel in that. But if he has brought you home, I pray that you will never go feral as to the grace of God, that you will never forget that he brought you to his table. He brought you to the party, that you didn't deserve to be there. When the son confesses, I am unworthy to be your son, he's telling the truth. But the grace of the Father says, no, you are my son. And if you're like someone, you're like, well, I've never done that, and I've never wandered, and I've kept this rule, and I've never done this, and I've never done that, and I didn't do that thing, and you've got a list, right? You've got a list that you made up, whether you think your list is biblical or it's just personal. Because some of us, we, we, tend, to, we tend to make our personality gospel, or, or we tend to make our personality true. Well, this is the way it should be, and did you see what I did, and what I've done, and who I am? Did I see... Listen, I don't have time for that. I'm prodigal, and I need an amazingly graceful God to rescue me. And I'm just trying to live in the fact that he rescued me, so I can't take your pressure. I know I'm not worthy to be his son, but I don't need pressure from you, and I don't need all of that, and you don't need pressure from me. We need to live in this reality that all of us, at some point, we're prodigals, and if we've been called by God, we've been called to his table, we've been called to his party. And having accepted that, having moved into that, we also need to remember, may we never grow feral as to grace. May we never forget that the grace that brought us to the table is the same grace that is bringing others. And the grace that keeps us at the table is the same grace that brought us. And we need grace no less if we, when, as, a, as a person who has stayed home than we did as a runaway. The heart of the son that stayed home viewed himself as a slave who had already received his inheritance. Did you catch that? The father divided it and he gave a greater share to the older son. But the older son was disgusted. Not because it took anything out of his share, just because he has gone feral as to grace. He's forgotten that the grace that allows him to stay in the home, the grace that makes everything the father has his, is the same grace that calls the other son home. May we never grow feral as to grace. May we never forget. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. The kingdom is extravagant, right? The kingdom is extravagant. Is it as extravagant as a $300,000 wedding? It's more extravagant. Is it as extravagant as a $10,000 wedding dress? It's more extravagant. Is the, is, is the grace of God enough and amazing enough to make you uncomfortable? It should. If you're not made uncomfortable by the nature and the amazingness of grace, you do not understand the level at which you have received grace. You have a you problem. I have a me problem. I don't understand what I've been given. His grace is extravagant. He was not a just enough God. He was not a go far enough God. He's like, uh, he was not up to the line. He went extravagantly above and beyond at the giving of himself. God became man and he died on a cross to rescue us. And then he calls those of us who hated him home to him to give us a party, to love on us, to care for us. Not a lecture, but his love. Not a spanking, but his embrace. Not destruction, but a future. This is the grace of the living God. And it's extravagant. And if you're not uncomfortable in some sense in its extravagance, it's because you don't understand the level at which it has been given to you. May we live in the kingdom reality of a grace-giving God this week. May we go into the next portion of our service when we sing songs of worship, when we take communion, the body, the, the body sacrifice and the blood given. May we realize that it's a symbol of the grace given us in this man, Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, endured death like a criminal on a cross to rescue and give grace to us. His love is extravagant. And extravagant love is transforming and it's changing. If you are the younger brother, I beg you, come home. Come home. Come to the table. Come to the party. Jesus is waiting. 
And if you're the older brother, I beg you, stop thinking that you have not received the same grace as your younger brother. You have. You are just as much in need. You are just as sinful. You are just as broken. You were just as destroyed. You were just as far off. Even though you never left the yard, you were just as far off in your heart and your affections as the one who wandered to another country. I beg you, if you are the older brother, give up and come in. You're invited to the party too. Story doesn't tell us whether the, whether the older brother came in, leaves it open-ended. But my prayer for you is that if that's you, if you've been holding things above others' heads, if you've been holding people to a standard, and that standard that you're holding them to is a standard that you set, it's arbitrary and it's useless. There's one standard, it's Jesus. We don't live up to it. The good news is he did, he does, and he died to rescue us. The, bad, the, the news that goes beyond that is not that we have to live then in sin, but that he is, the Spirit is making us holy day by day. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Right? If you're wandering in a far land, come home. The Father will meet you and he'll love you there. If you're standing outside the door angry, that the Father has let those guys in, I invite you to come into the party. The same grace that welcomed them home welcomes you to the table. And they've received no more than you have because we have all received the same thing in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me.